You're listening to Builder Funnel Radio. This is the Building a Family Business Show with Wes and Brooks Powell. Let's dive in. The Powell family construction business has been around for over 110 years. Over that time, it's evolved and been through four generations of the Powell family. What started as a new construction business building spec homes in the Seattle area evolved to building communities, remodeling, building custom homes, and then getting involved with property management. Today, the business currently owns and operates two retirement and assisted living facilities, several apartment buildings, and does third-party property management in the Seattle area with about 750 total doors under management. Over the last several decades, Wes and Brooks have seen it all when it comes to business evolution, family dynamics in the construction industry. This is the show where I work to extract their knowledge and experiences to help you navigate family dynamics, among other things, in your construction business. Let's dive into the show. Hey guys, did you know that 72% of client unhappiness is directly attributed to a lack of communication during projects? The team over at BuildBook has solved that problem once and for all with a tool that keeps all the conversations and decisions between you, your team, and your clients in one place. Their simple, powerful app helps you create daily logs, schedule and manage your client tasks, keep track of selections, process change orders, and so much more. I met the BuildBook team in Vegas at IBS earlier this year, where they were chosen as a finalist for the most innovative construction tool of 2020, which is saying a lot considering how many tools are actually out there. If you're looking to remove the stress from your projects, make your clients happier, and increase your profits, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software plus 45% off the first year. There's absolutely no risk to try it. So go ahead and hit pause and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 to take advantage of the trial and score the 45% off. This deal isn't available anywhere else. So I recommend at least trying out the software. All right, let's dive into today's show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Building a Family Business here on Builder Funnel Radio. Wes Brooks, how are you guys today? Doing great. Doing awesome, Spence. Good. Brooks, what's going on out in Seattle, man? Hey, the big news last week was our city council passed a payroll tax, which um, taxes companies who make over seven million dollars a year in revenue and if you pay someone over 150 grand a year you're going to pay another two percent and it's kind of a sliding scale so really targeting you know seven or eight really big companies you know amazon is one of them google be another one they're in seattle so this just affects incorporated seattle did you say seven million or seven billion seven million (laughs) so really it would impact a lot of very small companies Absolutely. And then the scale goes up from 150000 a year up to, I think, if someone made 500000 a year. So this is going to impact a lot of company, you know, a lot of tech companies that have high salaries. Um, so is this, is this replacing before they had attempted to... Uh, what they call the Amazon tax, what uh, right. we have a city council member uh, who's a socialist, and so she is just tracking after Amazon. And her quote was last week, hey, Jeff Bezos, we're coming for you and your kind, and we're going to we're gonna get you. I mean, so it's very, uh, wow. very aggressive. So it'll be, 
you know, it's one of those things that's going to play out, I think, over 20 years because the, the tax goes till 2040. Oh, now, Brex, so can, can this tax be overridden by the mayor or anything like that? I heard it was 7-2. The, the, the mayor could veto it, but I think the, you know, the political winds are such that it's going to go. I mean, it, it passed 5-2. Oh, 5-2. 5-2, which I was stunned. I thought it might have been much closer. But, so we'll see. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to... Do they say what that tax is going to go to? Um, a certain amount uh, to fund homelessness, a certain amount to fund inclusion, you know, to help work on, you know, balancing things within the city. And then, I don't know, $140 million to do something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. I lost interest. I'm just like, wow, that's just, it seems like such a bad idea. I'm fine paying for services to help people but it's just amazing the way they're they're choosing to do it i mean it's driving i think they'll just drive these huge economic engines out of the city so what do you think the maybe that's an interesting thing to talk about what are the unintended consequences of this tax do you think that the city council maybe isn't thinking about or i don't think i don't think city councils really really understand how business people think Mm -hmm. Uh, you know you can be committed to a city you can be committed to you know denver or you know wherever wherever you live as a business owner but there comes a point where it's you know i'm not appreciated or valued for what i bring in the terms of jobs and to the economy i'm just going to look at the numbers and say i'm going to move and people do and businesses do they'll you know they i mean one business they profiled obviously to show that people would be leaving the city you know He's like, I'm moving my whole company to Texas because it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. That's pretty extreme. And he may have a challenge finding qualified talent after he does that. So it's that balance. For us, though, people can move to, they can move their whole businesses to Bellevue or Redmond. I mean, mm, interesting. Open arms. You know, it's just across the bridge. It's 15 minutes away. So I think it's, 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 it's kind of similar to the impact that sometimes zoning laws will have within a city. So if they have very draconian zoning laws, then all of a sudden it just, the unintended consequences, it forces all the development just right outside the the center of the city and really creates kind of the opposite effect of what the the zoning department and the planning department wanted to accomplish. And that I think happened down in Portland, correct? Yeah, they did a growth management ring, they call it, and just pushes everything. It pushes either right inside or right outside. You know, but it can create these instead of having growth be a little bit, I mean, planned holistically all the way through. They just said, oh, well, we'll just put this ring here and that will solve the problem. Right. <laughs> the city of Boulder has done, you know, similar things and, and suffered from that. And certainly by putting a lot of restrictions on growth, kind of the unintended consequences, there's less growth. So the cost of real estate skyrockets, which makes it less likely that people who don't make as much money will be able to live in the city. And so, you know, it just kind of cascades and uh, you get a lot of adverse effects. Yeah. I mean, one of the things the city, city of Seattle city council doesn't, doesn't figure out is if you just made it easier to build in your city, you'd have more housing and you would then have more income and things. And so, 
just taxing the very top isn't really getting at the core issue, which is, you know, you're short 6,000 units a year because you can't figure out how to get projects built inexpensively and get them through the system. So it's just a disconnect between the market and city planning. You know, I, I, you, know you look at, it may happen in your city where you guys are at, which is uncontrolled growth, unplanned growth is, you know, a four-lane highway with stoplights and Taco Bell, Dunkin' Donuts, Taco Bell, Dunkin'. How and what kind of planning is that? I mean, that's not necessarily, and we still see it just replicated today. Again, you're taking the open market, which is oh, we'll just keep plopping our way down the way, and that doesn't look very good either. Yeah, it is an interesting problem. I think fundamentally, though, I think the question it's a difference of viewpoint, which is. Where's the control? So one group might say, well, we think the market should control what happens. And the other end of the spectrum is, no, we think government should control what happens. And so you see that in your tax policy and in your regulations. So in the sense of if we think about less expensive housing or more affordable housing or housing for the homeless, it's the question of, okay, who's going to provide that? And is it is the market going to provide it and take care of those things, or is government going to provide it? And that's where the dollars go, right? Government says, "Here, give me the dollars; we'll solve it." Right. And the market says, "No, we'll keep our dollars; and we'll, solve, and we'll solve it." Yeah. And probably and the answer is somewhere, somewhere in between. between. <laughs> you know, it's somewhere in between because it, yeah, because the the you know capital will seek a return, and the market will seek you know how do I make money, and they will do that in conjunction with the government. But both parties have to get there and say, okay, I don't maybe like all your ideas, but you know, if we can use some of them and, and vice versa. Right. Yeah. The happy medium. The happy medium. Yeah. You'd Not think there. though that you know we'd be be able to look at certain either cities or towns or you know, states that have maybe successfully executed planned growth, blending those two, you know, because yeah, it feels like you're just repeating errors across the country in different spots, you know, and, and that's where I think you, you have some of the inefficiency in government is that, you know, there's not that communication or, you know, if you were looking at it globally, you'd, you'd be able to take advantage of some of those hard lessons learned. But to your point, too, if you just let capitalism run all the way you know, then you'll probably see some weird things crop up like this. This doesn't really, you know, make a whole lot of sense, you know, holistically, or maybe it made sense in this, you know, sector here. So, yeah. So do you think you'll see a big exodus of companies? I was just talking to a remodeler last week and and he's in Chicago area and he's like, yeah, I'm thinking about moving down to Tennessee, (laughs) you know, just pick it up. I think that you have to, you always have to, I mean, I would still stay for, for me in the construction business. I stay in the Seattle market because there's demand. Sure. You know, so I'll, you know, I'll stay where there's business and I'll, you know, fight it out. You know, a buddy of mine was getting a, an over-the-counter permit, which is when you walk up and get a permit for something you do over-the-counter. City of Seattle, it's been a month for something you would get over-the-counter. And it's just real. So, so the trade-offs are there's work there. There's a job to do, but very complex. And, I think and so, so the more complex it is, of course, I think more expensive. The, more expensive and the less competition in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly new companies may 
choose not to yeah. enter into that market or, you know, someone who's just getting started, they go, man, this is too much. It's going to require too much capital, too much time. Whereas the established companies, it kind of plays to them because yeah. they understand what has to be done and, you know, they have market share. And so probably it, interesting enough, I mean, if, do you guys think that more government regulation in that case uh, stifles competition? In the sense that there's fewer competitors. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think it does, but more government regulation just kind of stifles everything, so it just makes it harder. And people will go. I mean, we saw that with Boeing 20 years ago when they moved out of Seattle and they started, you know, building planes in South Carolina and in other places. And that's not a not a good thing. It would have been better if we kept all that manufacturing here. But Boeing said, hey, we're not going to be held hostage by the state of Washington. So they physically moved their uh, headquarters to Chicago and said, okay, we are a global company. And we did. so they just removed themselves from all the pressure of Washington state. And so now they negotiate with different states. So we lost a big plant uh, that they built in South Carolina, which was just, I think, was foolish. Yeah. Well, yeah you know, 200 years ago, you wouldn't move your plant because it was next to the river, you know, <laughs> or three, 300, 400, you know, it was next to the river and you needed the, you know, needed the power of the water to, to right. run your plant. And of course we're so fluid today. Capital can go anywhere. Go anywhere. Borders are fairly open and, and porous and we can move things around. Certainly with just within the United States, of course. Oh yeah. There's an incredible amount of opportunity to move. Maybe I've never just never thought about it this way, but as soon as you guys were talking about it, it just hit me and maybe this is super obvious and I'm going to embarrass myself here. But uh, <laughs> well, I'm thinking about the whole Boeing thing. You said, well, yeah, they just picked up and moved a bunch of manufacturing to another state or a couple other states, you know, where the United States, but it seems like in this regard, we're, I mean, your states are competing to get these big employers and, yeah. you know, get people to move, you know? So again, that's another area where you're going, well, if we were looking at this holistically, you know, there's probably a more efficient way to, to do this or a, a better way to do this. Cause I'm sure the, the moves were probably didn't cost them anything. Yeah, versus, you know. <laughs> competing with each other versus thinking as a, as a, as the United States of America was the best way to do that. Yeah. Well, we will, we will see. And, you know, hopefully this uh, podcast will be around in 20 years when we see the results of this. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do a follow-up on the, the payroll tax. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Wes, what are we even talking about today? <laughs> I think we maybe we're going to talk about uh, stakeholders, you know, stakeholders versus shareholders. and uh, Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So why, I mean, why are stakeholders, why is this an important topic? Why did we even want to we don't know, you know, this is our <laughs> podcast, so we can talk about whatever we want, fair, you know, fair. it's important or not, but I, I think stakeholders and stakeholder theory is kind of a, something that's come up over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. And typically, you know, when we think about a company, we're thinking about shareholders, right? And maximizing shareholder value. And that's, that's the ultimate goal of any company is to maximize shareholder value. But there's been, you know, the thought has expanded to say, hey, there's, it's not just the shareholders, there's stakeholders. So you'll hear that now about, oh, well, what about the stakeholders? And you'll hear it in the news and you'll hear pundits talking about that. 
But essentially, it's well, who are our stakeholders in a company? You know, obviously, we've got our your employees are a stakeholder. Certainly, your shareholders are stakeholders. They're very interested in the company, but it could be your customers. Uh, it could be your suppliers. It could be society at large is a stakeholder in what the company is doing. You know, the government's a stakeholder, creditors are stakeholders. So there's lots of different stakeholders. And so it's kind of interesting to think about, well, how invested are those stakeholders and what's what's the impact of what the company does on those different stakeholders and what, what say should they have in what the company is doing? Yeah. And it's almost like what we were just talking about, you know, with this decision, you know, somebody saying I'm going after Amazon. Well, who are all the stakeholders involved in that decision is, you know, and that's probably more, you know, than they're just thinking about, but yeah, I guess, Brooks, as you think about, you know, some of the the businesses that you've been over the years, did you ever, I guess, think about stakeholders versus the shareholders and, and does that drive your decision making or? Uh, well, you know, it, it does. When you're talking, you know, in, you have internal stakeholders, external stakeholders, you know, internal stakeholders being employees, owners, you know, managers, people like that who are right in the company who are deriving benefit or, you know, causing things to happen. Um, and then your ex- external, like, you know, Wes was saying, you have external stakeholders or creditors, uh, shareholders, you know, banks, government, things like that. So as we, you know, over time, as you, I probably thought mostly about, well, how did I think about it as the owner? You know, probably, and then that drove some of my decision-making and then thinking about, well, what are the employees? How is this going to react to, you know, how are the employees going to react to some of these decisions and how are some of the customers going to react? You know, how's that going to affect the, the business? So it's, it's interesting to try to figure that out because you'll, you'll try to figure out, well, how will all the employees think about this and then, you know, be totally wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly as you talk more about, you know, can stakeholders all have a, you know, a place at the table, so to speak, you know, and have input. And I guess I have mixed feelings about that, you know, so obviously if you're a shareholder and a shareholder is just another word for owner, right? You know, if you're an owner, ultimately I kind of think about the shareholder or the owner, it's the old chicken and the pig uh, at breakfast, right? You know, the chicken is interested, the pig's invested, and because uh, he's the ham and the bacon and the chicken's going to show up again tomorrow for breakfast <laughs> and he's going to be interested. But to me, most stakeholders are following the chicken category and the owners are the, you know, the pig category and that they're invested. Things don't go well. You know, they're, they're out of business and it has a huge impact on them. But I think it kind of goes back maybe to what we were talking about earlier in the sense of some form of balance. You know, if you think about Flint, Michigan, for instance, where they had the huge problem with water contamination. And I forget the company that was contaminating it, but the whole water supply was contaminated by, by a pretty large, large company. And so in that case, hey, in this case, society at large was definitely a stakeholder in that company in the sense that they had a vested interest in having clean water. And so the company was obviously ignoring them as a stakeholder. 
And they were going, no, we're just, you know, if our whole goal is to maximize shareholder value, then we don't care about these other stakeholders. And so you can have some bad effects. And we certainly have seen that, you know, early on in the industrial revolution in terms of pollution and, and other bad effects. Yeah, that's an interesting one because it's it's these uh, I guess unintended consequences that you mentioned earlier. You know, you're you're going down a path and you're making decisions based on what you feel like is you know in this case, hey, we're appealing to shareholders, you know, people that are owners or you know the the livelihood of the business. But as you start looking at ripple effects of decision making and how big your company footprint is, you know. I always think about in terms of my team here, you know, we have a very small footprint in the grand scheme of things, but everyone here that works for me, like that ripple effect, like what we do, what decisions we make impacts their families and, you know, their, their lives and what their decisions that they're trying to make. And so, yeah, it does seem like there is a balance and I don't know, it's fairly complex when you start to get into it and you go, well, how, how should you make these decisions? Because if you make all the decisions just for the pig, then maybe the chickens all run off because they're like, well, this is no fun. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Or they can get a little upset. I mean, you know, if you start thinking through your different stakeholders, I was, as I was thinking about this a little bit earlier, I was trying to just identify what each stakeholder has, what, what their interest in that company is and that company's activities, you know? So so what's government's interest in what's, what's their stake in the company? What, what do they get out of a successful company? They get tax revenue. Taxes, right? Yeah, they get tax revenue. Yeah, they sure. employment, which you know, drives taxes. They get P&O uh, tax. They get income tax. They, you know, so. Yeah. So they do have an, a vested interest in the company doing well in order to get taxes. And I think if you think about the pandemic, you know, that we've been kind of experiencing right now, what's been happening to local governments that have been hammered by lost tax revenue because restaurants and companies have shut down and, you know, sales tax has gone way down and on and on and on. So it definitely for them and having taxes and be able to run the infrastructure is they have a big investment or certainly an, an interest in making sure that companies are doing well and want to stick around, right? <laughs> they want to stick around that doesn't translate to the, unfortunately, to the actions of government, which would be, oh, we need to make things easier to do business here so we can make it easier for people to operate. You know, we're, we're doing a project right now. We've been trying to get approvals for two years. Should be something relatively simple because it's just a reapproval. And uh, two years to get the approval, which means we can't build, you know, 100 units. Until we get the approval, which would provide more jobs, provide more taxes, provide more. Right. So that's a pretty clear example. If you have a, a, a stakeholder who doesn't seem to, who has an interest, but doesn't be able to. Be able uh, doesn't, doesn't connect the dots. Connect the dots. It doesn't connect all the dots. Yeah. If you've followed Builder Funnel for even a little bit, you know we're huge believers in the inbound marketing methodology. One of the most important phases is the client delight phase. By delighting customers, you turn them into promoters of your business and your brand. The only way to get people to go out of their way to sing your praises is to wow them throughout the process. This is something the guys over at BuildBook are helping you do. 
Better communication leads to better outcomes, and that means communication at every level. Daily logs, client selections, punch lists, and change orders. Today, that communication gets super fragmented between email, text, and phone calls, and inevitably, things fall through the cracks. With BuildBook, everything funnels through one simple app, keeping everyone on the same page and your clients filled with delight. No more digging through texts or random emails looking for client approvals. Just one place to see everything going on with a project. And as a reminder, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software plus 45% off the first year. All right, let's get back to the show. Oh, I just kind of, as I was kind of thinking through though, I mean, you know, creditors, you know, they have an interest in the company. They want to be repaid. They want to make their fees, you know, customers. Well, they're obviously a stakeholder because if they're getting, yeah, I was thinking about the B2B situation. Like, uh, you know, if you're a remodeler or a builder, and you're a customer of a you know lumberyard, and the lumberyard fails. You know, now you've got a problem, right? And uh, and the same flips around for the supplier, right? If the supplier of his his ultimate user of you know the lumber, if the remodeler goes out of business, he's got a problem. So you know everyone's got that. They do have a, everyone has a stake in everything else in some way. Yeah, as you were talking about the government, maybe not always connecting the dots, it seems like maybe, do you feel like government in general just maybe doesn't have that growth mindset? Because the couple of examples you just laid out, you know, you make it easier for businesses, they want to come there, they're going to grow, you make it easier for them to grow, like their pie gets bigger too, and everybody's winning, you know, and there's more to go around, there's more to help certain causes and put it towards like, you know, homeless shelters and some of the examples we used earlier. So do you think that's part of what it is or is it just not always aligned interests? It's because it seems like a lot of the interests would be aligned. Oh, I think generally government is interested in growing, you know, I mean, because it's made up of people just like anything. And so people are interested in job security and, you know, more structure around and more, you know, all of that. So more government, I think for most most governments are are very interested in self-perpetuating themselves and growing bigger. And I think it's also a viewpoint that they can do more to help maybe than general, general industry. So that is the mindset, but I think they can see growth is happening. They don't necessarily, I don't think see that as the company grows, they grow, they can simply say, we are an entity in an, in an of ourselves and we can, we're going to extract more taxes or, you know, we're going to do whatever we have to do to maintain what we have going forward. And that just may mean that companies have to give more or people have to give more to maintain this. And uh, so you certainly see that in Europe, right? Where you have countries that have very high tax rates and the government provides a lot of stuff, but uh, it relies on those people to pay those taxes. Well, it's interesting. I've been in, in meetings with so be governments, you know, stakeholders, and you're explaining to them what you're trying to accomplish, and you and you recognize that you have not done a good job of educating people about how business works or how the process works because you're sitting there talking to 
to people and to planners. And you realize, you know, I have not done a good job of explaining, you know, how the economics of this process and product works so they can understand what the challenges are to try to get to the finished product, which is what they're interested in, which is housing, which is, you know, the business we're in. But it could be any kind of service that, and they just, that's not their training. And so I think I just happened a couple of years ago and I'm just like, you know, I should really have done more around, you know, explaining, hey, this is, these are all the different market forces we're up against and uh, saying we're glad to take on those challenges, but this is where we need to help, you know, from the government so that we can try to, to navigate, you know, all, you know, all the risk. Um, so probably that's probably part of that bringing people together, bringing stakeholders together is helping educating all the stakeholders. Okay. Here's what these different stakeholders are concerned about. And here's, and uh, at least that's where you get probably more people in a common space. Like, okay, yeah, that works. It's not ideal, but you know, it works. Well, you certainly see that in planning departments. I remember early on when I was, you know, Brooks and I were just starting to build houses and so on and work in a pretty small town. And the planning department was made up of uh, some very, very young <laughs> planners, probably, you know, our age or a little bit younger. And what you soon found out was that young planners who don't have a lot of life experience don't have that economic lens. So, you know, if you, if you, let's say you go into a building department and you talk to someone who's been in that building department for a long time, like a plan checker or someone, they, if they've been through some economic cycles up and down, they know that their paycheck is paid by fees that are for building permits. And so they know that, hey, I do need to move building permits through at some rate in order to, um, to keep my job. And if the economy tanks and no one's getting building permits, you know, no more raises, things have to be cut back eventually. So I found that the younger folks in the government side were less flexible. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that whole education piece got me thinking about, you know, as people are thinking about their own businesses you know, you've got the shareholders and the stakeholders, but everyone that you're impacting, if if everyone's kind of clear around their goals and outcomes and you're sharing that, it, you know, that information you're educating on how the process works and how somebody's goals, if they achieve those, it helps the other person achieve their goals. But then you can start to find those, I guess, synergies. I hate to use that word because it gets thrown around a lot, but you can find the the common ground of how you can move forward in a way that's moving shareholders and stakeholders closer to their, their goal. And kind of want to pivot a little bit to talk about how family maybe changes up the dynamic if it does or doesn't, you know, what, what have you guys found there Brooks over the years does having a family member as either a shareholder or a stakeholder, does it look different? with it being family versus non-family? You know, a, a, a shareholder is a stakeholder. So the, I think it, so when a family member is a shareholder, there's a stakeholder. They could be a, a family member, could be an employee. So they're a stakeholder. They could be a shareholder, which said they have ownership. And those are kind of typically the two spots that family members would sit. So I think you still have to be, 
there's more complexity because that family member might have more impact uh, or you're going to impact them more by decisions you make, or it's going to be your impact, your impact in the family member. Whereas if you're, if you have an employee, it's not a family member and you have to terminate them or lay them off because the economy's slow, you know, that's unfortunate, but they're not a family member that you're going to see at Christmas most likely. You know, so um, it's a different relationship, but I think that's where the, the challenges come, you know, when a, when a family member is a stakeholder. Yeah. I think a family member, they don't, they don't even have to be like maybe you're saying, Rich, they don't have to be a shareholder. They don't have to be an employee really to be a stakeholder in that business because it is part of the family dynamic. So certainly a child, child. who's growing up can be a stakeholder in that company even though they don't have any ownership and any of that, because what's going on in that company definitely impacts them. Or it could be a sibling maybe who's not involved in the company, but they think that someday that they may be involved with that or have some piece of that or, you know, so they also become a, a stakeholder and, and have an interest in that company. Once again, maybe more in the chicken category than the pig category, but certainly has an impact on everyone's day-to-day lives. With stakeholders, it brings it just brings up the idea that, you know, communicate, communicate, communicate. And so your level of communication depends on how important you feel that relationship is with that stakeholder. You know, let's say you have vendors and you have three plumbing vendors. Well, you might communicate to a certain level with them because you have three, uh, whereas if you only have one plumbing vendor, you might communicate a lot more because you're like, you really need that one plumbing vendor. So it goes back to probably layers of risk as a business owner. And so you may need to communicate much more with a family member who could be, as Wes described, could be a child, it could be a sibling, because you, you're committed to that relationship. Because, you know, yeah, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family members. Yeah, right. I, I like your point about communication and Brooks, as you were talking about that, it made me think about a time, you know, when dad was back in the early seventies, we had the Boeing crash and he definitely had just started a housing development was really struggling with that because all of a sudden the sales dried up just as he launched. And so he had a bunch of suppliers, you know, lumber suppliers and plumbers and everything like that, where, you know, they all needed to get paid and, he was struggling to, to make those payments. And so, you know, you have two choices with your stakeholders. You can either shut them out and not communicate, or you can communicate heavily like Brooks was talking about and, and work out some good solutions. So in this case, you know, dad did a ton of communicating with his stakeholders. So in that case, it'd be the creditors, the suppliers, with customers. And by doing that, communication, he was able to work out a solution for really kind of a tough dig out out of that spot because the economy just totally tanked at that time. So I think communication with your stakeholders is critical as Brooks was bringing up. Uh, you know, the interesting thing you talk about that, Wes, is that, you know, not all of us want to be communicators. You know, some of us may be naturally want to communicate and some people may not want to naturally communicate. So that's the thing to look at, you know, look at, ask yourself that question, which is, you know, am I a good communicator? Am I a bad communicator? When things get tough, do I just, you know, close up, don't want to talk to people, 
and think strategically about, you know, how do I want to communicate to my stakeholders? And, and if you certainly, if you don't communicate with them, that is a communication. That's right. <laughs> so, and they're going to fill in the blank for whatever you are not communicating. And I think when we realize that, we go, oh, I would much rather shape that message and have that dialogue with that particular stakeholder uh, to achieve a better outcome. So, you know, as business owners, we have to be good communicators and think about how we're, we're having that interaction with our stakeholders. I think now, when I think about now, how I would think about business versus 30 years ago, they think it's pretty tunnel vision or, you know, very much just thinking about the typical, what used to be the typical stakeholder, which was the shareholder or the owner, you know, me, myself, and I. And now I think it is kind of good to run down the list as you think about decisions that you make as a business owner and go, okay, well, I'm making this decision. I normally think about how it impacts my employees and how it impacts me and maybe how it impacts my family. But yeah, how does it impact my suppliers? How does it impact my customers, my creditors, society at large? You know, all those types of things. It's worthwhile to take the, you know, could be 15 minutes, could be 10 minutes just to kind of rip down through that list and think, okay, any unintended consequences that are going to come from this decision that I'm making? I think it just helps us get us a better, well-rounded decision-making process. Yeah. How does that play out? Is that just kind of some some what-ifs? Because I think this whole idea yeah. of the unintended consequences is a good one because oftentimes, yeah, you, you only looked at a couple of components or you had to act quickly. So you just went, great, this seems good on the surface. And then you get you know a couple of weeks or a couple of months down the road and you go, oh, I didn't think about that, you know, so is there a good, good process or is it just kind of a part of just saying, okay, if I do this and then just trying to walk through the steps and see how it plays out? Yeah, I, I really, I think that's been, you know, you can't see the future and you can't read other people's minds. So simply just by running, ripping down to the list and just saying, okay, am I at least given this some cursory thought here instead of just you know, some of us are more prone to action than others. You know, some people are very much knee-jerk and, and make decisions immediately. Some people are tortured over making decisions. But eventually, you know, I think just, just making sure you've thought it all the way through, through, through the entire list of, of folks. You might, you know, it might be, if you have that list of stakeholders, you may yeah. be one that you pick up the phone and call and say, hey, I'm thinking about making this, you know, making a decision here. What, you know, what do you, what would you, any feedback, you know, and, that might be depending on their level of interest in the in the business. You know, your lender, if you're a lender, if you're pretty heavy into your lender, then he might be pretty interested and you'd want to have his support for maybe some move you're making either direction. Yeah, make them, you know, we've talked, well, we haven't talked about it here, but certainly we've had discussions about mastermind groups and having key people at the table to help you run your business and get their input. And so if you have a close relationship with a supplier, you know, close relationship with a customer or past customer, a lender, if you can get those people in to help you think through some of those things on a regular basis, you know, awesome. That's, that's great. A way to do it. Yeah, that's a yeah. You know, take them all, you know, just meet for breakfast once a month or once a quarter, you know, something. Get that input. Yeah, because you can always you still call the final shot, but then that exposes you to the new ideas and the things that maybe you didn't see and think about. I was actually just 
talking to a, a friend of mine, Todd DeWalt, and he'd been in construction for a long time and now coaches construction business owners. But we were talking about that same uh, concept of kind of like pushing decision-making down and the person that is at the level of the work usually can identify problems or oh, issues yeah. in a schedule or think, you know, much better, which makes total sense. But a lot of times when you're making decisions at the top, you forget about that or you skip that step. And so just getting that little bit of input, you know, can, can save you from making a bad move. Absolutely. Yeah. Go talk to the person who's actually going to do it. Yeah. So on this whole topic of shareholders, stakeholders, what else do people need to be thinking about? We've kind of talked about how maybe the family dynamic changes it a little bit and it's a good way to maybe make better decisions or at least have just thought through the impact of the decision so you kind of know what what you're dealing with. But Brooks, anything else that we should add to this? As as you're thinking about your stakeholders and you're thinking about family members who are stakeholders, it's remembering that there's a lot more emotional energy uh, that those family members bring as stakeholders because they have more invested, whether they're your your children or a parent or a sibling. There's just more emotional energy around it. I can't, um, probably there's a better description for it, but. No, I uh, think that's pretty good. <laughs> where a, a, a banker is going to be like, yeah, that's interesting, but I've got 200 other clients and, you know, if this doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world where I don't, it's just an interesting dynamic. There's more, something you'd think as a business owner, Oh, well, I'm going to talk to another minority partner who happens to be a sibling or a child or, you know, and think, Oh, this isn't going to be a big deal. And there's just more energy around it because there's just more family energy. So I think it's important to recognize that and, try to move, you know, move through that and recognize it may take a little bit more talking and time than it would with someone that you're not related to. Yeah. That's, I think that's a good point about the time, just allow enough time and know, know your stakeholders, right? I mean, know their personalities as much as you can, obviously, you know, society at large, you're not going to know society at large personality. <laughs> That'd be tough. Multiple, to nail multiple personality <laughs> disorder, you know, society at large. <laughs> but certainly, you know, your family members. So, you know, some people can't make decisions quickly or they need to think things through, then you need to allow enough time for that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. That makes sense. Well, hopefully this has given you guys some some food for thought. I don't know that we solved any world problems today, but uh, probably zero. <laughs> certainly, yeah. It hopefully expanded some thinking and just made you think about some things within your own business and your own world. And uh, as always, we appreciate you guys listening. Let us know if you have any uh, topics or uh, random things you want us to, to riff on and talk about. But we appreciate you listening. We'll see you next week on Builder Funnel Radio.